Go ahead and uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the butterfly effect. Okay, okay. So we got some people here who've heard of the butterfly effect. And don't worry, I'm going to get us all on the same page here. So the butterfly effect essentially is how small changes or small actions have far-reaching impacts beyond our ability to understand them in the moment. Kind of that one little change can have a very large effect in the long run. And this term was coined by Edward Lorenz. Um, he is a meteorologist uh, in the 1960s, and he had some computer models that uh, he used to try to predict the weather. And he found that if he changed a small variable on the scale of a, that would be equivalent to a butterfly flapping his wings. It was very metaphorical and you know, poetic, but a small scale change, even the size of a butterfly flapping its wings, it would cause anything from sunny skies to violent storms, and there was no way to tell what was going to happen, right? And so essentially, he said it's, in, it's impossible to predict in advance what a small change can do. And then that became the butterfly effect, and then many people have played around with it. There's even a movie by that name. Um, there's TV shows and books and all of that. And so I looked online and I said, okay, what are some real-life experiences? What are some stories that people have on the internet about these kind of crazy coincidences that have happened in their lives? And so I'm going to share with you a few of them that I found. So this lady wrote, my mother wore heels to work and slipped on the carpet step one day, resulting in a broken high heel and a broken leg. While she was at home recovering, she developed allergies that led to her needing penicillin. The penicillin she was prescribed interfered with her birth control. Now I have a brother 13 years younger than me. <laughs> kind of crazy. Another lady said, I moved a potted plant on one side of the elevator about three inches forward so that it would be symmetrical with the plant on the other side. Well, a guy ran by and into the elevator and broke his toe on it. His co-worker then drove him to the ER, and they got in a car wreck on the way, and he was in a coma for two weeks. Just kind of crazy. Here's another one. My pregnant cousin usually takes the 5.10 p.m. bus after work, and one day she was about to hop inside but really needed to pee. So since her commute is over an hour, she decided to go to the restroom and then catch the later bus. That 510 bus ended up falling off a cliff that day. Just crazy. Okay, here's one more. I got actually two more for you. So this one. I was leaving my house with my four-year-old son, and my phone started to ring while I was on the front porch. So I paused to answer it. Not even a minute after I did, a drunk driver slammed into my car that was parked on the street. If I wouldn't have answered the call, I would have been putting my son in the car at that moment. And the car slid down the road over 100 feet. Just kind of crazy moments away from disaster. Last one here. So I had a slew of horrible uh, matchups from a dating site, multiple dating sites, and they decided, uh, I decided to let my subscriptions lapse. So one night I got a message from an app uh, that was set to expire in a couple weeks from a guy that was just in town um, for a job trial, and he asked if I wanted to meet up for pizza. So we met up, had a great time, and we didn't discuss all the typical first date stuff since we knew we wouldn't see each other again, and he was going back to another state. 
So the night ended, we went our separate ways, and he went back to the other state. So I was working a second job during my days off from my main source of income for a few years. One day, I was on my way to work and decided to play hooky and take a hike. That's not like a idiom. That's literally she took a hike. Afterward, I stopped at the grocery store, and who was there standing next to me in the deli? Question mark, question mark. She doesn't actually tell us, but I think we're supposed to assume it's the man that she met on the dating app that she mentioned earlier. We have now been together 10 years, and she says that was the only time I ever skipped work in my life. Just kind of crazy. Like, this is the one time she decides to skip work, and then she meets the guy that she, in a different state, he happens to be back at the same time. Just crazy. So the one I think I resonate with the most is the lady who accidentally breaks a guy's toe by moving a plant. Not because I ever put anybody in a coma, although I thought about it when my brother stole my french fries, but because I could see myself moving a plant to make it symmetrical and just like noticing something like that. The point is, not about moving plants, the point is that sometimes our small impacts the things that we do have long-lasting consequences that can go much further beyond anything that we can imagine. And these ripples carry across time, and sometimes, most of the time, we don't see their long-term effects. But God can. God knows everything. He sees everything, which means that these aren't the butterfly effect to him, right? These aren't some incalculably small changes that have big outcomes to him. He sees it. He knows it. Which means that he can also orchestrate things. He can use his power to accomplish his goals in ways that we can't see. It's this truly amazing quality of God that brings us to where we're at today in our series. So we're going to be finishing up the series, New Bridges. And in this last message, we're going to be looking at the big picture. What happens in the big picture of building bridges and sharing our faith? And today we're going to be looking at Saul. Not Saul from the Old Testament that tried to kill David, the first king of Israel, but Saul from the New Testament who eventually gets his name changed to Paul. So go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 9, which is our main passage for today. And I'm going to introduce you to this guy named Saul. So the first time we hear Saul's name is in Acts chapter 7. And he was present at the execution of a man named Stephen. Stephen was a Christian who uh, made the Jewish elite mad because he kept proclaiming Jesus. And so they decided to drag him out of the city to be stoned. And once there, the witnesses took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of Saul. It's kind of morbid, but you can throw a stone better if you're not encumbered by your cloak. So... Saul is standing there, this man, and they're putting the coats at his feet, and he watches as they stone Stephen to death. And so this act is kind of strange. Like, why are they putting the cloak at his feet? Why is this man just standing here? Well, essentially, Paul is approving of this stoning. And he's also making sure that it can happen, because your cloak is valuable, and if you just set it down, someone could take it. So... Someone watched these cloaks so that everybody could execute this man. And then later on, even in Acts 22, um, Paul says, I was taking care of these cloaks so that this could be done. And Acts 1 actually says that 
he was approving of the killing by standing here and, and doing this job. So from this point, Saul, who is this very fervent man, goes on a rampage against the church, right? It literally says that Saul began to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging men and women out and throwing them in jail. So just like this extremely passionate persecutor of the church. And that brings us to Acts chapter 9. Let's go ahead and read the first verse. Oh, <laughs> I forgot to turn to Acts chapter 9 when I was talking. <laughs> I was in Hosea chapter 9. I, my brain wasn't even thinking. Okay. Acts chapter 9. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked for letters for him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he could, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So the way is just a simple shorthand for what the Christian movement was called in the day. So he goes to the high priest. He's like, "Hey, can I have an official letter that if I find any Christians in Damascus, I can bind them up, arrest them, and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial and put them in jail?" So he gets this official documentation to be able to, to go to Damascus. And while he's on his way, a bright light flashes. Saul is blinded. The guys that are with him don't know what's going on. They hear this voice of Jesus, and Jesus talks to Saul. Obviously, he's extremely confused and dazed and amazed by this. Jesus calls out to him and says, go into that city, go into Damascus, and you're going to wait there for more instructions. Now Saul is sitting in Damascus, and he's blind, and during this three-day wait, he doesn't eat or drink anything, right? He is having a moment of crisis, and he doesn't know what to do. Meanwhile, while Saul is waiting, Jesus is having a chat with another one of his followers, with one of his followers in Damascus named Ananias. So look at verse 10 with me. We're going to see that conversation. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias' response here is both a little funny and relatable to me. Look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. For he has authority from the chief priests to bind up all who call on your name. Now Ananias is like, hey, Jesus, I know you're all resurrected and glorified, okay? But... You know this guy, Saul, is a bad dude, right? That's essentially what he just said. I mean, I will lay hands on him if you want me to, you know, lay hands on him. But this guy is not going to listen to me. Okay, this, there's no way Saul of Tarsus, this persecutor of the people who follow you, is going to listen to me. And so all joking aside, Ananias is obviously extremely uncomfortable with going to see Paul. If Jesus talks to me in a vision and he tells me something, I'm like, yeah, but wait, 
I have to be pretty uncomfortable, okay? Saul, Saul is a murderer of Christians, and he has governmental authority to come here and do it. So after Ananias uh, responds to Jesus, Jesus responds by just saying, go, essentially. Look at verse 15 through 18. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. So in this story that we just read are some really important things for us to learn, some things we can pull out of it. But before we do that, before we analyze it, I want to share with you some facts about this man Saul. So Saul, as we see here, was totally against Christianity, like the biggest persecutor, as one man can go, of Christians at this time. And after his experience, he became a follower of Jesus. He just, we just read his conversion experience here. And later on, Saul uh, changes his name. He gets the name Paul as he starts his ministry. So during his ministry, Paul wrote a lot of letters. 13 of which we have in the New Testament today. Which means that he wrote nearly half of the New Testament by the count of books. And by the word count, he wrote 31% of the New Testament. Right? So between Paul and Luke, they wrote over half of the New Testament. And so during Paul's ministry, he traveled over 10,000 miles, which is three times across the United States, in a time when travel was very slow and it was very hard. He started at least 14 churches that we know about. He also mentored some of the most important people that we read about in Scripture in the New Testament, like Timothy. Now, I share all of these facts with you, not to put Paul up on a pedestal, but to make the point that Jesus knew what Ananias couldn't see. And the list of things that we can learn about from this this passage here starts with that, that Jesus sees people for who they can be. All right, so when Jesus comes to Ananias and he says, I want you to go talk to Saul, Ananias wants nothing to do with it because Ananias sees, sees Saul as a Christian persecutor, as a murderer, right? No wonder Ananias is hesitant. But Jesus saw the potential in Saul that no man could see. In the same way that he sees potential in us and others in a way that we can't. Have you ever looked at someone and said, they are a lost cause. They would never accept Jesus because of fill in the blank. I don't like to admit it, but I have definitely had my doubts about a few people in my life. And 
I've thought they're too far gone. They're too in love with the things of this world. They're, they're too against faith as a concept to ever change their minds. There's no way God could use them. No way they would ever become a Christian. I'm sure Ananias felt the same way about Saul. But it is categorically wrong for us to think like that. And the reason it's wrong is because we only see the past and the present. That's all we got. And we're missing the big picture that God has. And this is where we need faith and obedience instead of us getting in the way of our own thinking. Right? Because you don't know what God is doing in someone's life. You don't see the potential that someone has like he does. Think about it this way. You are in God's recruiting department. You are not in HR. Okay? Right? So our job is not to screen people out. Our job is to not go through all the liability and make sure, do the background check on them and make sure they're clear and have them sign all the paperwork before they get into the church. All right? We are not HR. We are recruiting. Our job is to go out and draw people in. Right? Our, our job is not to be gatekeepers. We're harvesters. Right? That's how Jesus talks about us. To go out into the world and to find the people that God has already been working on. Another thing we can learn from the story is that obedience often leads to discomfort. So if you try to live out this command to build bridges, to share your faith, you are going to be put in uncomfortable situations, I, I promise. But the good news is, is that the people that are placed in your life that God has asked you to talk to are most likely going to be easier than a murderer who came specifically to your town with governmental permission to hunt people that think like you, all right? I mean, God is most likely calling us to talk to our neighbors who bake chocolate chip cookies, not destroyers of the church, okay? So, like, if you think about it that way, Ananias' situation, talking to Paul, maybe we have a little less to be worried about. You know, we have some awkwardness, sure. We have some... Difficulty, some shyness. I'm not saying that we should just disregard all of our discomfort and, you know, just ignore it. It's okay for us to be uncomfortable. But I found something that I think is really applicable here. I heard something when I was doing some research for this. Fear is okay, but it is not the house we should live in. It is the door that we should walk through. Okay? So if you are afraid to share your faith and you just build your little house around that, you're just going to be always afraid of it. I'm sure Ananias felt the same way. But because of his obedience, he walked through that fear to go talk to Saul. And guess what? God worked in the situation through Ananias and great things happened. So you may be feeling God speaking to you to talk to someone. And you're afraid about it. You're anxious about it. You're a little worried and that's okay. But we need to be able to walk past that fear, walk through that fear in obedience. And I want to touch on another point here, kind of like another side caveat. We sometimes, and, and when we're afraid or stressful and we don't want to do this, we sometimes talk ourselves out of that stress and responsibility by generalizing instructions that we have in Scripture. So, Scripture is clear. 
God and Jesus and Paul and other New Testament authors have asked us to share our faith, to talk about our faith with people. And our response can be, you're right, God, as a church, we should be reaching our neighborhood. We should be talking to these kinds of people. We should should be doing this kind of ministry as a church. If only the church did this, then these kinds of people would hear the message of God, right? Well, that is a very easy way to shift responsibility to the church that is actually a personal responsibility. So the church as a whole, we think of the church maybe as this building, but it's actually a group of people, right? It's a group of individuals, and there is no the church should do, it's I should do as a part of the church, right? So we do specific things as a group, for sure. I'm not saying we don't. We pool our resources to accomplish bigger things than we can do as individuals. But discipleship, evangelizing at its heart is a personal thing. It's an intimate thing between two people or a small group of people. And the churches here, this body, if you just look around, I know it's kind of awkward, but literally just look around, look at other people. Okay, look behind you, look in front of you, look to your left and right, wave, John just waved. These, this group of people here, the collective knowledge, the collective resources, are here to support you in that ministry, right? We're not doing it alone, we're doing it as a group, but it's also an individual task. And this is not here to guilt you into doing something and pushing you in a way that maybe God isn't leading you. You shouldn't just like just go into your workplace and say, okay, I'm getting over my fear. Everybody, I'm telling you about Jesus now. I mean, if that's what God's calling you to, then maybe that's what you should do. But I'm just saying this is a reminder and an encouragement that it is okay to be uncomfortable with sharing your faith, but you need to walk through that as well. Don't live in it. And it's an encouragement to realize you're not doing it alone. God is already working in people's lives that you can't see. And he's working through you as well. So you're not on this mission alone. On this mission alone, you have the church as well. All right, number three. Last thing here. From this story, I think we realize and can learn that our biggest impacts come from relationships. Perhaps, and I argue, probably the biggest thing that any of us will ever do in our lives, the biggest ministry we'll ever have is the discipleship of other people. Sharing your faith with your kids, your family, your friends, and other people along the way. Making a disciple harnesses the power of multiplication, right? Because then they can go and make other disciples. And by the very fact that you're involved in someone's life, makes you a key, a key component in the things that they do. So we look at Paul, and we look at everything that he accomplished, right? We look at the churches and the letters that he wrote, and this amazing, faithful man that he became. But behind that is the faithful servant Ananias, who went to speak to him, who walked through his fear and obedience to go and talk to the murderer and persecutor of the church, right? I am here speaking to you today because... Old ladies that I learned from in Sunday school class 20 years ago put their love for God and Christ and the knowledge of their Bible into my heart. 
right? My parents poured into me. My friends have poured into me. And I am a combination of their love for Christ because they decided to build bridges with me. They decided to earn my trust and to show their love. And now their ministry is a part of my ministry, which is a part of your ministry, which your ministry is a part of my ministry. Right? We're all connected in this together. So this idea of building bridges is a lot bigger and further reaching than any of us can even imagine. And God sees it. It's your job to trust it. Our obedience is sharing our faith. And that produces a fruit that goes far beyond our view, far beyond our understanding. So who knows what ripples your obedience will cause. Please pray with me this morning. God, the orchestrator of this universe, you can see it all. I just pray that you work in our lives as this group of people and in our lives individually to bring about your work to help us share the message of you and your son and your kingdom to the entire world. And please place in our hearts the people that you want us to talk to and give us the opportunity to do that and the courage we need to make it happen. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.